You're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, serving the latest news in sci-fi multimedia. And now, your hosts, Scott, Miles, and Anna. Your table is ready. Live long and prosper. This is the captain. We have a little problem with our entry sequence, so we may experience some slight turbulence and then explode. I got a bad feeling about this. Walter, put the cow away, would you? What is this place? It's a freak show. Ladies and gentlemen, the Sci-Fi Diner podcast has brought you many great interviews with New York Times bestselling authors in the past. Today, I'm delighted to bring a conversation with the bestselling author of the Secret History series, the Nightshade series, and many, many more series. Open Road Media is excited in the next in the upcoming weeks to be publishing his new short story collection, Tales of the Hidden World, which comes out in trade paperback and ebook on July 8th. His works have been praised as gripping and fast-paced and emotionally intense, Publishers Weekly, and Critical Mass raves that there's no urban fantasy author consistently more entertaining. Simon R. Green, welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. So you have been writing for more than four decades. Wow, what a career. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed I'm still here, to be honest. <laughs> I started out, I actually started out writing when I was a student in London way back when. And I sold a handful of short stories and then couldn't sell a damn thing. And so finally, when I was 30, I was laid off from the job I was in. And I was unemployed for the first time in my life. And I thought, well, now is the time. If you're ever going to take your writing seriously, start now. So I was unemployed for three and a half years. It was the 80s. There was a lot of it about. And I was living on unemployment benefits of £28 a week. And I basically wrote morning, afternoon, and evening, seven days a week. And during that period, I wrote seven novels, all of which were rejected repeatedly. Finally, after three and a half years, I get a job working at Bilbo's Bookshop in Bath. I start work on the Monday. On the Wednesday, I get a letter from America, that's Ginger Buchanan Ace, saying, that book you sent us two years ago that we've been sitting on, we would like to publish it. (laughs) And we like the characters so much, would you like to write five more books to make a six-book series? And I said, I could be persuaded, yes. <laughs> and, that, and that was it. That was how I suddenly, I'm off and running. Wow. With a six-book contract out of nowhere. <laughs> I worked at the bookshop for a couple of months while we sorted the contracts out. And then I went straight into working full-time as an author. Now, the six-book contract got me an American agent, which is Joshua Bilmers, who is now, of course, head of Jabberwocky. He went on to sell five more of the books that I'd written while I was unemployed. So essentially, after years and years of nothing, I'm an overnight success. <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, what a, what a story, too. I mean, you put, it was basically about 20 years where you didn't see much of anything happening, except for a few short stories yeah. here and there. And, yeah, uh, I, I started literally started writing in 73 and sold my first novel in 88. So that's 15 years of wow. trying with, you know, with hardly editing the show, and then suddenly it all catches up at once. Yeah. And I've been working nonstop ever since. And my 50th novel has just wow. gone in. So <laughs> wow. I, I sometimes stop, 
understand you. I think, how do I get here from there? I'm not entirely <laughs> sure, but no. um, well, so I was, I'm always quite proud to say, you know, I've written 50 novels, all of them different, because we've all seen authors who basically have the same plot, the same kind of characters, and if you've read two or three of their books, you don't need to read any more. You've read what they have to offer. I take a certain pride that all my series are, are actually quite different from each other. They're different settings, different styles, different characters. The night side essentially came out of the idea of a private eye who operates in the twilight zone, solving cases of the weird and uncanny. And the idea was that London has this hidden secret heart where it's always night. It's always three o'clock in the morning. It's always film noir. And as a result, of course, you've got the private eye is a very dark, brooding character. When I decided I wanted to do another series, I thought, what's the other great 20th century iconic character? The secret agent. So I invented the secret histories, which is Shaman Bond, the very secret agent. And of course, his character is almost the exact opposite of John Taylor in the night side. He's much more open, he's happier, he's much more content with his life and how he runs it. So the two series are literally light and, light and day, light and dark. I think that's why they've both been so successful. Hmm. So I want to come back to those series here in a little bit. You also have a series called the Death Star Stalker series too. Yeah, this is um, my science fiction series, Space Opera. It came out of the fact that I absolutely loved Star Wars when it first came out. I saw it in the cinema on its first one and absolutely loved it. Uh, it was only sort of some years later I looked back on it and I thought, wait a minute, there's a few holes here in the plot. And the one that struck me was you've got rebel forces, rebel armies, you've got spaceships, guns, a lot of it. Who's paying for all this? Where's the funding coming <laughs> from? Surely you haven't got guys standing around on street corners rattling and collecting tins. I mean, this after they would have more shot. So I came up with the idea, what if there was one guy He's outlawed, he doesn't even know why, he's on the run. And we see him build a rebellion, person by person, backer by backer, and we show him making political deals, economic deals, putting things together, in the knowledge that even after he's won the rebellion, there's still going to be a price to be paid. So you've got five Death Stalker books in the first run. The first three are the rebels against the evil empire. And in the end of book three, they've overthrown evil emperors, good has triumphed, but that's not the end of the story. But when we get to book four, all the various people who've made up the rebellion have suddenly started to turn on each other. Because it's one of the great facts of life that the very people you need to win a war for are often the worst people to actually put into power as part of a democratic system. One of the um, models I use, there's a book and a film called Is Paris Burning?, which was set on what happened in Paris after the Nazis left, but before the Allies arrived. Because suddenly all the various groups who'd made up the resistance turned on each other. Because whoever was in power in Paris when the Allies arrived would be supported by the Allies, who would then move on, you know, moving across France towards Germany. So it was vital for whoever was, whichever group won to be in charge of Paris. So people who only months before had been fighting side by side, risking their lives with each other, suddenly were shooting each other in the street over a political cause. So I used that as the basics for books four and five of Deathstalker. 
Well, suddenly, friends and allies turned on each other to determine who would actually replace the evil empire, which I think is what gives it its mm. strength. Hmm. Very cool. And it's a very, it's, it's something that many authors, you know, you, you go with the actual, you know, the, the space opera, you know, them doing the, the, the great overthrow of the government, but you don't think about the ramifications afterwards, you know. Exactly. I mean, I am a huge fan of space opera in general. I love the old Planet Story style space opera, Leigh Brackett, Paul Anderson, all that kind of stuff. I just thought, if we're going to do this, let's do this right. Let's actually <laughs> do it in some detail. And I did the five books. I have to say, it was supposed to be a trilogy, but the damn thing grew on me. <laughs> two and th- the second book became two and three, and the third book became four and five. I get to the end of the series, and I don't think I'm giving too much away in a spoiler alert. Pretty much everyone's dead by the end of book five. That was always what I intended. And I hand it in, and um, I think, that's it. Finally, I'm finished. And I go to a world convention, and my then editor was there, and she said, we go have a meeting. I said, fine. And she insists on a breakfast meeting because editors are swine for breakfast meetings and I'm not a morning person. <laughs> so she's sitting there with a full fryer. I've got a cup of black coffee. And she says to me, right, we want some more death talker. I said, everybody's dead. Doesn't matter. We want more. <laughs> okay, I said, thinking furiously. Um, 200 years on, death talker, the next generation. That'll do fine. So I ended up doing three more. And it'll be eight books. But that, I think, finally is the end of it. I'm pretty much death-stalked out until, well, never say never, you know. Right. I don't know when something will come along, but I think we can safely say for the moment I am death-stalked out. You are death-stalked out. That's awesome. You know, you put out, you have a, and these aren't the only series. We're just talking about these three series so far. You have a couple other series. You know, you, you've written 15-plus novels. How do you find the time to put all these novels out and keep them all different like you're doing? Like you're doing? Well, I would say um, I take my job seriously. My job is to write, and that's what I do. Um, I, I work seven days a week, except for when I feel like taking a day off, which I occasionally do. But I sit down every day, I work every day, and I don't do what I think of as distractions. I don't do Twitter, I don't do blogs, I don't do any of that stuff. Because the time you take out to write that is time you take in a way from what is my job, which is writing novels. But it comes down to the fact that if you sit down and you work every day, you end up with finished books. I don't do lots of tours, I don't do lots of publicity, I work. I let the books serve as publicity. I don't mind doing the occasional convention. I, I just did a, a Chicago convention a couple of months back, which is great fun. But truth be told, I hate to travel. I really do. So if I do two or three conventions a year, I think I've done my bit. I like to do them. I like to meet my audience. I like to do signings. I like to chat. I like to do panels. Fine. But that's not my job. My job is to write the books, and that's what I do. Right. So Except for when I'm appearing in um, local amateur plays. I've been, I've been appearing in open-air Shakespeare productions for over 30 years now. But I actually started out going right back. I started out my career as a professional actor. And I started in the theatre. I did theatre. I did open-air productions. I did some television. And I thought that was what my job was going to be. And then I was struck down 
with an absolutely awful case of glandular fever, what you call mono. Okay. Which I had on and off for 11 years. Wow. It would hit me for three or four months, I'd get over it for six months, and it would hit me again, and this just went on and off for 11 years, 77 to 88. And it meant I couldn't be an actor anymore, because I, could, I was never sure from one month to the next what my health was going to be like. So that killed that one dead, and I sort of drifted sideways into writing. I'd always been writing, but I suddenly thought, now that I'm to take it more seriously, and that was when I started concentrating on that. But like I said, I've been doing... Shakespeare on and off for 30 years. I've been doing various plays and various groups for 30 years. I ride motorbikes. I do various other things as well. So I'm not always sitting in a room writing. It just seems that way. <laughs> well, you know, and it, and it goes to show that, you know, if you really want to make something of whatever career it is, but in this case, writing, the idea of being very focused and not allowing some of the distractions that we allow in our lives is, is, is essential. It's self-discipline. It is very much putting your, your seat on the chair and putting the words on the paper every day. An awful lot of people you know, who say they want to be writers, they're, they're quite good at having ideas, they're quite good at sitting down and starting things, but the number who, who never actually finish anything, it, it takes that self-discipline to sit down and say, right, keep going, keep going, finish, go back, rewrite, and then move on to the next thing and the next thing. Self-discipline is what makes a writer every time. Yeah, awesome. Well, I want to back up just a little bit. Why science fiction and fantasy? I mean, many of your novels and series take place in these worlds. Is there something that draws you to this genre? I'm a fan. I am a long-time fan. I was... Uh, going to conventions, you know, reading the fanzines, letter hacking to the letter columns, you know, for years. I still love going to Forbidden Planet, you know, on a regular basis and just walking around looking at the show saying, what's new, what's exciting, what haven't I seen? I still get previews every month and go through looking at what new comic books are coming out. I love all that stuff. And where it came from, um, well, first off, my dad had a whole run of Tarzan books, which I discovered when I was very young, and I absolutely loved them. And of course, that led to John Carter and Mars and Venus and Pellucidar, and I read all of those. And he had a whole bunch of magazines from the 50s, which I found, and I read all those. And of course, Doctor Who had just started. I watched that, and um, I basically just thought, this is it. This is what I like. And I've been reading science fiction, fantasy, horror ever since. I'm still reading it now, still looking for the good stuff. And so that's what I like, because that's what... I enjoy. Um, I like other stuff as well. I mean, I say Secret Histories is about, you know, a secret agent with fantasy and science fiction overtimes. But I have read a whole bunch of spy material. I read the original James Bond books by Ian Fleming. Before I was old enough to get into the cinemas and watch the movies, and I'm still a huge fan of the original books. In fact, when I started writing Casino Royale, just... I did the book called Casino Infernal, which is my take on the book. And I got the original book out and read it, and I was surprised at how well written it is. The opening pages of Casino Royale is just a couple of pages of Bond in a casino in the early hours of the morning, describing how it feels when the luck's gone bad and you can smell the scent of despair permeating the casino. And it's a wonderful piece of writing. So I love the Bond books. I love Len Dayton. 
I loved um, John Le Carre. I read all of those, and that, you know, is bound to um, infuse the writing that I do when I'm doing the secret histories. Wow! And who else? I love Leslie Charteris, the Saint novels. Again, my dad had a bunch of those. I devoured them, and I went and read absolutely everything the guy wrote. If you look at the the way that Charteris would mix comedy and action and thrills, and occasionally science fiction and fantasy. That had a huge in, impact on the way that I write, the way that my sense of humor runs through whatever series I'm doing. There's always a sense of humor in the background. Hmm. I think that comes from reading Leslie Charteris. Hmm. Uh, so as far as authors today that you're huge fans of in science fiction be beyond the work that you do? Um, I love the classics. I love Delaney and Zelazny and Ellison. They're still really good writers at Right now, there's a guy called Django Rexler, who wrote a book with a thousand names, which is absolutely superb. There's a guy called Nick Harkaway, a new British writer who's written some wonderful books. I love Neil Gaiman's stuff. Um, Clive Barker's gone quiet recently, but I absolutely love his run of books. He wrote some fantastic novels. Stephen King, of course, everybody loves Stephen King, and quite rightly. Um, there's always good stuff out there. Right. Um, it gets harder to find. Back when I was discovering science fiction in the 60s and 70s, you could have at least have heard of everybody, and you could have read most of the field. Nowadays, there's so many authors out there, and it's such a big field, you, you just can't keep up with everything. Right. Which I think is a, it's slightly a shame, because I, it means I know I'm missing good stuff if I could <laughs> just find it. Yeah, and if you had the time to find it all, right? So, oh, God, yeah. I mean, yeah. Every now and again, I think, let's just buy a whole bunch of stuff and sit down and read. I think, hang on a sec, if I read everything, I'm not going to have time to write anything. <laughs> yeah, I know. There, there goes that focus again, right? <laughs> nice. Oh, yeah. Um, so I want to come back to your your series uh, mm -hmm. a little bit. There have, while, while they are different stories, you do end up crossover, cross, crossing over. At least some of your characters make appearance in multiple stories. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, basically, it, it, it started just basically by accident when, you know, a character would turn up in another book. And the more I did it, the more my audience seemed to enjoy it. And the more I thought, well, they're all my characters. Why shouldn't they all meet each other? So I decided that every single character in every single book, they all exist in the same fictional world. So why shouldn't they bump into each other? And occasionally, um, you know, if, they, if they're in uh, a situation that they don't know much about, it would make sense that they would contact someone from another series who would know about that situation. And again, it, it's just fun to take a character from one series, put it in another series, and see how they react together. I love the fact that you've got John Taylor and the Night Side and you've got um, Shaman Bond in Six Histories. The one time Shaman Bond encounters the Night Side, he absolutely loathes it. He hates it. And it's just a case of, oh, clearly these two guys are not going to get along. They're not going to, to partner up to take on the big bad together. And I, I quite like that. And I like you know, taking you know, uh, a, a character who might be just a, a small part of one series. We appear in another series and have a larger role simply because there's more room for him in the other series to spread his wings and to show off what he can do. That's awesome. And, you know, like you said, uh, you know, I, I know that I, I like that either whether it's TV shows or whether it's literature, when you see 
a character that you've seen somewhere else suddenly appear and you're like, oh, it's like this, it's like, especially if you like the characters, like coming home a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I, I really, I really, I'm glad that you do that. I think that's awesome that you do that. Um, some of your work has been, has been labeled uh, as being kind of this urban fantasy. Now that's a term that's come out in recent years. Uh, what does that term really mean to you? Um, I have to say, when I started out doing um, the Nightside books with the very first book, there was nobody else really doing that. Um, my book came out, and then uh, the Dresden Files appeared shortly afterwards. We both had roughly the same idea of a private eye with a fantasy background. And then suddenly Glenn Cook appeared with his series of, of a private eye and a fantasy novel. It was clearly an idea whose time had come. And back then we were the only guys doing that since then the idea is sort of spread and there's a lot more people doing this dark urban fantasy thing i don't think it, it's really new you look back to say fritz lieber with his stories of the 40s and 50s when he was reinventing horror and putting it in modern settings um i think you know he's he's clearly an, an influence on us but it does seem to have grown over the last five to ten years and I'm very pleased to see that. Yeah, well it's good for it's good for your work and uh, what you've been doing, that's for sure. Also because I like reading it myself. Yeah, that's awesome. So let let's turn let's turn this to the direction. You have a book a collection of short stories that's coming out June July eighth. Tell us a little bit about this collection that you've coming out with Open Road Media. Well, basically, as I said, I started out writing short stories. I sold half a dozen to the various uh you know, fanzines and semi-prozines. And then I, I really basically hit a wall and couldn't seem to sell everywhere. A lot of the magazines were dying off. It was just that period. And I turned away and, and concentrated on novels instead. And then about 10 to 12 years back, out of nowhere, an editor emailed me saying that they were putting together an anthology. Would I write a short story? And I thought, well, I don't know. Have I got an idea? And I thought, well, actually, yes. And I wrote a short story. And... The editor loved it, and suddenly other editors were saying, would I do short stories for them? And it sort of took off from there. And over the last 10 years or so, I wrote a whole bunch of short stories. Some of them were nightside-based short stories. They're appearing in their own collection from Ace, which is Tales from the Nightside, which is out in August. And Tales from the Hidden World is basically all my short stories that weren't set in the nightside. And they're basically stories that people asked me to write for various anthologies and um, some I wrote for various magazines like Cemetery Dance. And this is my first collection. These will be my first collection of short stories. So I'm very looking forward to seeing um, how the audience is going to react to them because a lot of these stories will be seen together. You know, the audience will be seeing them for the first time. So I'll be very pleased to see how they go down. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the joys of the short story is it. I mean, novels. I love novels because you've got room to sprawl. You can have big cast. You can cover a lot of ground. A short story. You've only got a certain number of pages, a certain number of words. You've got to really punch your weight. You've got to have a high concept. You've got to have an interesting character. Beginning, middle, end. Get in, get out. Make your impact. Move on. And it's a whole different set of skills. It actually takes me longer to write a short story than to write a chapter in a novel because 
you, you haven't got that room to sport. You've got to hammer it down. You've got to nail down the corners. You've got to get everything sorted out properly. And that takes much more discipline. But just think of what makes it more fun. I've, I've enjoyed writing some of the short stories in Tales from the Hidden World particularly because simply because they were so different from what I normally do. Right, right. And, and it's, it's something that's fresh or fresh for you and uh, it's neat that you're putting this all together. My understanding is that one of the stories at least does tie into some of your novels, the, uh, the, uh, the Secret Histories novel series. Yeah, I, well, when I was putting together two collections, I decided to sweeten the pot. So I wrote a new night-sized story under that collection. And I said, I'll do a new secret history story for the Tales from the Hidden World. And what I ended up doing, um, there's a character in Secret Histories who is the armorer. He used to be a field agent. He's now an old man who was in the armory. It's his job to come up with the, the guns, the gadgets, and so on. His cue, basically. And I love the idea of this old man sitting there in the army trying to decide, has he done more good? Did he do more good as a field agent running around in the days of the Cold War, staffing out supernatural bushfires, trying to save you know, the world? Or has he actually saved more lives by producing these guns and gadgets and things to keep other field agents alive in the field? And he's trying to work out what was most important in his life. And as he looks back, and as he tries to decide, he gradually realizes that his life has followed a clear line that he didn't actually see until he looks back. And we actually get a whole new insight into the character by the end of the story. Awesome. So something that... I if, doing that. Yeah, well, so, so for something that, if, for people that are fans of the secret history, is something they can look forward to. So... so. Well, very cool, very cool, and uh, and even the title, the what is it called, the Question of Solace, kind of has that James Bond type feel to it. it all the, the secret histories have titles which are you know based on Bond titles. It started <laughs> out, you know, the Man with the Golden Talk, Demons Are Forever, yeah. and so on. Yeah, but I know, of course, it's fun. Quantum of Solace becomes Question of Solace. Yeah, yeah, that's um, awesome. So, um, I mean, the current book, which is just out, is Property of a Lady Fair which is based on the short story, Property of a Lady. Um, originally, it was going to be called Property of a Lady Thing, because, you know, we've got uh, lady boys. So I thought, why not have a lady thing that's male and female and everything in between as the ultimate honey trap? And when I told my editor, hey, my next book's going to be called Property of a Lady Thing, she said, over my dead, lifeless body, I'll be calling it that. <laughs> so it became Property of a Lady Fair instead. <laughs> Oh. I keep threatening to write a story called uh, Cthulhu Pussy. <laughs> One of these days I'll get around to yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So uh, it's it's going to be available through Open Road, and it's and it's June eighth. Available in trade paperback and ebook. Is that correct? Yep, this is my first collection uh, with Open Road, so I'm very much looking forward to it. Awesome, awesome. Well, we'll definitely put links to that when it comes out in the show notes and let people know where they can find it. Uh, before oh, we cool. let me, before we let you go, you you yep. have the, you have a movie that you're also kind of working out right now. Yep. This just um, finished up, I right? Wrote, I wrote an original screenplay. Um, one of my series is the Ghost Finders books, which is traditional ghost stories and hauntings, but in a modern day setting. I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of M.R. James, the classic ghost story writer. But I thought, let's take that kind of story but put it in a modern-day setting. So the first book, uh, Ghost of a Chance, was about a haunting in the London Underground at Charing Cross Station. And the, current, and the books since then have been about um, 
for example, a haunted radio station, you know, where dead people start phoning up the phoning programs. And I had a chance to mm-hmm. write an original screenplay, so I wrote a Ghostfinder screenplay called Judas Ghost. And um, I was put in touch with uh, a British director who'd done a lot of television but was looking for something for his first film, and we got together and got on like a house on fire. We have since shot the movie. We had a professional cast, professional director, cameraman, the lot. I've seen the finished film. It looks fantastic. It's currently out there touring the film festivals, getting very good responses. And we're looking for a distributor at the moment. It is, unfortunately, a very slow process. When you're on the outside trying to get in, when you're not part of a studio, you haven't got connections, it is very difficult to get your foot in the door. But the producer and director are out there pushing it, and we hope to have it first in cinemas and then in DVDs. That's uh, I say it's called Judas Ghost. It's from the old idea here that in a slaughterhouse you'd have something called the Judas Goat, a trained animal whose job it was to lead the animals into the slaughterhouse so they wouldn't panic. Oh, yeah. So I thought, you've got the ghost finders, they turn up to what they to deal with what they think is a standard haunting. But no, that's the Judas ghost. Once they get there, there's something much worse behind it, and the whole thing is a trap. And they have to figure out what's really going on and how they're going to survive this. That's awesome. As I said, it's it's done several um, British and American festivals, and it's had really good responses. So hopefully that will help us get distribution sorted out. Yeah, well, that's awesome. And you have a decent, you, you have a great cast for it. I mean, you have Martin Delaney from Zero Dark Thirty and Stormhouse, The Shadow Line, and then you have uh, Lucy Cutton from Chemical Wedding, Wrong Door, Simon Morales from Spartacus, War of the Damned. You have a great cast that's kind of yeah, fronting this. We got them first before they before they went on to be to be huge. So hopefully, again, that will help us with a distributor. Um, as I said, when I saw the finished product, I was very very pleased with it. Um, i just, just say, if you go on YouTube, there's the trailer for the film that's on YouTube, and there's an interview with me talking about the film on YouTube. Right, right. Well, we will uh, we will definitely, uh, again, I'll put that in the show notes as well so that people can see that for themselves, and they can. I'll put links to the site so they can get the word out and help promote it. Okay. So people, if people want to find out more about you, your works, and, uh, and where they can buy th- their books, is there any place that we should send them? Yep. I've got my own site. If you go on to the internet, just put my name in, it'll take you straight to it. It talks about, you know, what all the books are, where you can find them. There's forums, there's book covers, there's everything there. Right, right. And, uh, and I've got, then, I've got uh, a fan friend of mine who runs it for me. Awesome. And then obviously this collection, the, um, the, the Tales of the Hidden World, that's going to be out through uh, Open Road Media. And our open, yep. I think it's Open Road Media or Open Road, is it Open Road Media or Open Road Books? I think it's over on media, yeah. yeah. And so that you can, uh, they can certainly find it there. Well, Simon, yep. I really appreciate you taking about a half an hour of your time out of your schedule just to sit down and talk talk with us here at the Sci-Fi Diner. Glad to do it. And I uh, look forward to seeing uh, your next novel out. Okay, cheers. Thank you so much for visiting the Sci-Fi Diner. We hope you enjoyed the food, the service, and the conversations. If you'd like to share your thoughts regarding what we've talked about, Tell us what you're watching or reading. Flip open your communicators and contact us at 
508-4343 or click the SpeakPipe link at SciFiDinerPodcast.com or send an MP3 or typed email to SciFiDinerPodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation on our Facebook fan page at Facebook.com slash SciFiDiner. We'll share your thoughts on our listener feedback show. If you'd like to support the diner beyond the conversation, you can always throw some coins in the tip jar at sci-fi diner podcast.com. <laughs>